As an entrepreneur, like, you know, it kind of sucks to have, like, egg on your face to be like, yes, yeah, so that thing that yeah. I thought was going to work and that you gave me all that money for, it actually is just getting us to the next thing, which I now need money for. <laughs> but, you know, like, that's actually a big difference between um, kind of web tech people and, and funders from, like, traditional issue advocacy funders. Web folks get it. They're like, if they're upset about anything, it's that we didn't, fail earlier. I first met Brian Elliott a few months ago at the PopTech Festival in Maine. He's the CEO of FriendFactor.org, an online platform for gay people to unlock the power of friendship to accelerate legal freedoms for LGBT people. When we met, he was on the verge of launching the FriendFactor website. He told me it was going to be huge. Yeah, uh, we were taking... Uh, guesses, I think we thought there'd be 50,000 in the first you know, month or two months, and we ended up getting about 2,800. Now, Brian is launching Friend Factor 2.0. I met up with him at his offices in Midtown to learn more about it. So it turns out that we started asking the wrong question. Um, and the question I was trying to answer initially is, how do we get more straight people to stand up for their gay friends? Well, we had to go one step back from that is, how do we get gay people to ask their straight friends for support? So what that led to then was us realizing that we, we need to start much more focused. We can't, we can't launch a movement just by announcing that we're launching a movement and starting a platform. It has to be built on a series of victories or, um, or sort of in a stepwise reaction so that we get momentum in a real place on a real issue first. What we want to test now is where there is something at stake, and it turns out the first state in which a major gay rights piece of legislation is coming up is in Maryland on the issue of marriage for gay couples. So we did a quick needs assessment and found out like, you know, what kind of advocacy tools could we build there, and uh, it turns out quick, uh, the, the, a click-to-call functionality isn't one that uh, the state group had quick access to, and that's Equality Maryland. So we formed a partnership with them and very quickly built a tool in which built or built for straight friends, uh, in which they can make calls to their state senators in Maryland on behalf of their gay friend, and in which gay friends can ask straight friends, "Will you guys call in and do this for me, and let me know when you've done that, so I can thank you?" Brian Elliott and his team have designed a brilliantly simple campaign. You can find it at MarylandPop.org. It's called "Pop the Question." So if you were to um if you were to type in your information here. Yeah, so, so for this area that I typed in, for this zip code and address, uh, a lot of people here probably wouldn't even know who this is a picture of. This is Senator Victor Ramirez, and uh, there's his number. Now, um, this click-to-call functionality, the way it works is you literally just click on this button, uh, and then the, the button changes to the word that says calling, and um, I put my cell phone in, so now it's, uh, it's validating my number. And, um, okay, so uh, I would pick up, and I'll put on speaker here. I'm going to connect you with your state legislator's office. When someone answers, say your name and address and ask, does my legislator support my gay friend's freedom to marry the person they love? Because I sure do. Winning freedom for our friends is going to take a movement of voices. Thanks for making yours count. Press any button now to be directly connected to your legislator's office. So I'm just going to push one here. So, um, so we're giving people instructions on what to say, and we're trying to make it as simple as possible because uh, our assumption is that 
you know, most people haven't called their state legislator before. Most people don't know that much about the issue. They just care about their friend. They just wanted help. So after you say, I've, I've made the call, uh, you're taken to this next page, which just says, thanks for calling. How easy was that? And uh, the first thing you see is a Facebook status update. Um, and just above it, you'll, some people will notice there's a blue button that says gay with a little asterisk. Uh, click here again. So that gay, that, that gay button, which we're calling endearingly, is, is essentially a gay eject button, which takes you to the gay page, um, which has uh, slightly different messaging for gay Marylanders. And of course, you know, anyone can click on the button. There's nothing to hide. My guess is most gay people are going to click on a button that says gay, click here. Um, I certainly would. But there's just unique messaging that uh, has a slightly more personal um, status post where you can say, friends, like this is about me and my life. We, I have a goal of you know, ex-friends calling in uh, for my freedom to marry in Maryland. Will you please reply to this Facebook post and let me know that you've done this for me so that I can thank you. So if you don't click on the gay button, so that, as many of my friends would not if, if I had invited them to this page, um, there's another Facebook status post which says, I just popped the question to my state legislator, will you support uh, my gay friend's freedom to marry? Because I do. Like, will you join me, essentially? It's very hard to talk to two different audiences and at once create a space that's very safe for my straight friends uh, so that they don't feel like, hey, if I'm on this site at work and someone walks by, they're not going to think that I'm gay. Um, but then also to speak to people like me who are gay uh, and, and to say, guys, like, it's your role to step up and ask your friends. Now is the time to make this about you. This is about adding your friend factor. So we're not, we may not be focusing on building our own social network that leverages Facebook, but just go to where people are at on Facebook all the time and make the action happen there. Uh, and we'll see how that works. Activists and freedom fighters all over the world are now using websites like Facebook and Twitter to further their revolutionary goals. But do these tools really help? Internet theorist Evgeny Morozov says the answer is no. The people designing these tools in the West design them to make money. I mean, they don't make them to liberate the world. I think it's a very dangerous assumption to think that Facebook or Twitter in this business to be, you know, the next radio for Europe or Voice of America, in this business to be the next, you know, United Fruit or Halliburton. Evgeny Morozov has become the Internet's most famous Debbie Downer. If you say hacktivism, he'll show you slacktivism. If you say Internet revolution, he'll show you net delusion. In fact, that's the title of his new book, The Net Delusion. And while his primary goal is to have us radically rethink our assumptions about how the internet really works, he's also pretty harsh about basic group dynamics. There was this very interesting experiment conducted, I think, in late 19th century. It was published in the early 20th century by a French, uh, I think he was an agricultural engineer, Max Ringelmann. What he did was to basically study how effective people are uh, working in groups uh, as opposed to working on their own. So they, he had uh, a group of people pull on um, a string uh, together, like when there were five of them or six of them, and uh, do it alone. And he measured how much contribution uh, each of them basically put in when they were doing it on their own and when they did it as part of the group. 
And of course, he found out that when they were doing it um, individually, and when it was easier to monitor how much effort each of them was putting in, uh, each of them tended to put in a little bit more effort. Um, and uh, it's a very nice metaphor to think about what happens with many online groups, which pursue this extremely ambitious objectives like you know, saving children of Africa or stopping climate change, where they attract million members and where those members don't do much, you know, other than sign petitions and give money. And often this is where their contribution stops. To me, you know, the big question is, would this two million people trying to save children of Africa through a Facebook group be much more effective if they were just acting on their own? And to me, the answer is obvious. Of course they would be, because they would be they would not be constrained by the kind of technologies that Facebook created. They would not be constrained by the kind of group objectives. You know, we only need to raise money or we only need to raise awareness. Uh, and to me, I think uh, it's experiments like that which provide some useful counterpoints to dominant thinking about you know, how online activism should happen. And they also reveal the limitations of online activism because, as I've said, much of it now is tied to digital platforms like Facebook. Uh, which were not designed to maximize the efficiency and the effectiveness of the digital activist campaigns. Many of the most chilling stories in Net Delusion come from Morozov's part of the world. He's from Belarus. You see, there are some folks who are definitely benefiting from social media. Uh, so there was a very uh, disturbing case in Belarus uh, a few years ago when um, a young activist uh, who wasn't really on the radar of the security services, I mean, he was involved in some opposition activities, but he wasn't, you know, a top youth leader or anything. Uh, and one day he was invited to uh, his, you know, he, he was a student at the university and he was invited to his dean's office. And uh, there he was met by uh, two officials who said that they still, well, that they work for KGB. And, you know, KGB is still called that uh, in, uh, in Belarus. And um, they started asking him all sorts of questions about who he is and uh, what he does and how he is connected to the opposition and why he goes abroad and why he goes to, you know, Lithuania and Poland. And he... Uh, first denied everything, and he said, I don't know anyone from the opposition, I don't know who those people are. And at some point, these two gentlemen uh, just pulled up his uh, page, uh, his profile page on a popular Russian social networking site called Kontakte. They basically showed that he, many of the well-known opposition letters in Belarus already list him as a friend. So there must be some connection. Uh, and uh, they basically caught him, uh, and they said, you know, we want you to cooperate with us, and if you don't, you'll have problems in the university. Of course, it's normal that you have so many um, officers in various uh, security departments in places like Russia or China uh, turn to social networking sites to basically learn more about what's happening and to learn more about the existing connections and to learn more even about trends. It's not just about individual activists. You can also turn to those sites to study the opinions of a particular demographic group. What, you know, it's very easy now to find out what do graduates of a certain college who are based in a particular city think about a particular subject. You know, this knowledge allows Facebook to make so much money of advertising, right? So uh, 
it's basically the same principles that can be easily exploited by all sorts of security services around the globe, including in authoritarian states. The whole point of social media is to be social, right? It's to show how you're connected to other people, is to show your location, is to tell a story about yourself, and uh, it helps to inform people who probably don't need to know uh, where you up, where you are, and what you're up to about your whereabouts. I give one example in the book of uh, Mexican uh, crime gangs basically looking to social media sites to. Uh, learn more about their potential targets, new targets. Again, uh, they usually go after people who are rich and well-connected and who come from uh, you know, upper classes. And uh, uh, there is no better source on Facebook to see how they are connected. Uh, it's, you know, it's like you know, in Amazon, you get these recommendations for the, you know, the next book you should buy. It's almost the same as Facebook. You know, if you spend enough time, you know who all of the rich kids are. And, you know, and so it's obvious, but again, to me, uh, the two fundamental laws that drive all of that are simple. It's that the internet reduces uh, uh, the costs of access to information, and that uh, the internet facilitates collective action. The uh, you know the, the place where I disagree with many you know cyber utopians is that I don't think that it's necessarily a good thing because there will be all sorts of forces that will be exploiting that information and organizing online uh, to oppose democracy and to oppose democratization. And a lot of cyber utopians completely miss those forces, and they think that the only people there who may be able to use them and to organize are the good guys pushing for democracy. And I just think that the social and political environment is way more complicated than that. Yeah, but it does seem, though, that the primary goal of this book is not just to show that, that cyber utopianism is perhaps a misreading of how the world and the internet really work, but rather how cyber utopianism can lead to serious missteps and consequences in this fight for internet freedom. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, to me, uh, it, it doesn't really matter if there are cyber utopians who wake up in the morning and think that the internet will solve all of the world's problems. I mean, I'm okay with them. Uh, you know, thinking that or believing that, you know, it's a, it's to some extent it's a religion. It's not, you know, it's it's a cult in some sense, right? To me, the real problems start when cyber utopianism penetrates the corridors of power, you know, and when you see policymakers who unthinkingly often uh, just jump on cyber utopian assumptions and then they uh, do not critically think about all of the security questions involved, all of the privacy questions involved, uh, the opportunity costs of promoting internet freedom as opposed to real freedom and democracy. I mean, there are all sorts of critical issues which need to be assessed, which aren't assessed if you adopt this very rigid cyber utopian perspective on the world. Yeah, but you seem to saying that there's consequences. In fact, maybe things are being made worse. Oh, sure. I mean, of course, there are consequences to cyber utopianism. I mean, some of them are on the level of us not recognizing the real problems or not recognizing the actual importance of problems, right? So again, if you think that bloggers are just like dissidents, you will not notice that there are plenty of bloggers in Iran or Russia or China who are much more conservative and anti-democratic than their governments. And so what we see in countries like China, again, is that there are huge contingents of people online who basically want to push China to have a war with Taiwan, right? Or who want China to go and have a war with Japan. And uh, all of those people are extremely active online. They may even be 
sometimes supporting a more democratic China, and they may even hate the Politburo, but they also want to have a very aggressive foreign policy. And unless you know something about the politics of China, there is no way you'll notice those people, and there is no way they'll factor in your analysis. And this reveals just yet another danger of just analyzing all of these uh, problems uh, by, you know, through an internet-centric lens. Uh, because if all you're looking for is the consequences of internet, uh, you know, of course you'll see, hey, bloggers, and bloggers, of course, are the good guys. And, you know, again, in places like Russia, you don't have to start with this blocking framework in mind. There are a lot of people who support Putin. There are a lot of people who hate the West. You know, that was the case before the blogosphere and definitely the case after the blogosphere. So it's only normal that some of them will find, um, you know, a voice online. And I think it's by bringing this... Uh, extremely biased assumptions about what bloggers are and what bloggers do that we tend to miss this uh, sort of more unpleasant mm -hmm. manifestations of you know, new media. But it seems that authoritarian governments are not missing this. You, you have these fascinating examples in both Russia and China where the governments are able to take advantage of these forces, almost outsource some of the work that they would like to be done. Sure, I mean, but they, they, well, the reason why governments are doing that is because they're just doing it everywhere, not just online. I mean, they want to have uh, tight control over how information spreads. So in Russia, you have this very talented guy called Konstantin Rykov, who is a member of parliament and is something of a godfather of the Russian internet. He's been online for almost two decades. He knows it very intimately, and um, he has his own new media empire, which mostly serves the political and ideological interests of the Kremlin. So, you know, he does everything from... Uh, documentary, online documentary films, which are distributed using peer-to-peer -peer file sharing sites, uh, which basically are accusing the Georgians of starting the war in South Ossetia in 2008. And again, those are extremely propagandistic films, but the way in which they're distributed would surprise any new media company, you know, even in America. It's all done very strategically. And, you know, in China, it's done somewhat differently. They don't have this cult figures like Rykov, but they have a more decentralized approach where uh, they basically, uh, you know, have local provinces and local uh, communist cells uh, outsourcing some of their propaganda work to bloggers and, you know, holding trainings and uh, paying bloggers to basically find uh, anti-government materials online and anti-government blog posts online and just go and debate and, you know, argue with those people to convince them that the government is actually right. There was this very famous uh, incident in China when uh, a Chinese young man uh, was arrested for illegal logging. Uh, and he was put in a uh, prison cell, and uh, two weeks later he died. And the Chinese government, uh, the Chinese police, of course, first said that he died because of uh, brain injury, that he hit his head uh, on the wall while playing uh, hide-seek. Um, and, of course, the Chinese bloggers and netizens didn't believe that story. And they launched their own you know, investigation. They began debating what happened online. Immediately the story attracted and like 100,000 comments, at which point the propaganda chief of that local Chinese province stepped in and said, 
hey, what we'll do, we'll form a commission uh, from netizens, from bloggers, and we'll actually send them to prison to inspect what happened and to blog about it. And it seems uh, to have diffused most of the tensions. Uh, you know, only later did it turn out that, of course, the members of this commission never got access to surveillance tapes and that the members of this commission were actually all current or former workers of the Chinese state-owned media. And, uh, you know, uh, but that helped to quell the public discontent in some sense. Again, it's a very proactive outreach, which, you know, probably would enter the textbooks of, you know, modern propaganda really soon. There's been some major dissing going on with this book. Some folks, Roger Cohen in the New York Times, went as far as to say that your book is now the Dow 36,000 of, of our time because of what's going on with Tunisia and Egypt. What's it been like for you dealing with these sort of criticisms? They don't hurt. I mean, they actually strengthen my case that the discourse about the Internet in the public sphere is very simplistic. And that, uh, you know, the, you know, when we talk about the Internet, uh, it turns out that many pundits actually talk about something else. They have their own fixed assumptions about how the world works, uh, how democracy should or should not be promoted, uh, where, you know, the history and future are heading. And for them, the Internet is just a very convenient uh, shortcut. You know, and, and, and again, to me, the problem is that the Internet of Freedom offers this very idealistic fix to uh, almost any problem in American foreign policy. Look, we don't have to promote democracy in Egypt, but we'll promote Internet of Freedom and bloggers will then overthrow Mubarak. Right? And I just think that's not the right way to go. We have to go and correct the first wrong principles in a U.S. foreign policy. Right? You cannot just expect that now that we'll empower bloggers everywhere, we can just forget about supporting you know, uh, the tacit support that America offers to many of those dictators. We have to go and correct that first, right? And to me, the problem is that many people working on internet freedom have no, well, have very little connection to, you know, what America is doing or shouldn't be doing elsewhere. And this disconnect bothers me a lot. And I think the only way to get the internet right is to basically not to focus too much on the internet. I have to say that I admire Evgeny Morozov's fortitude, being that his book tour for Net Delusion is taking place as net-fueled revolutions rage in Tunisia and Egypt. But to really get a sense of what all that means, I called up some of the protesters who were tweeting live from Tahrir Square. Well, I mean, the, the, the thing is, if you're in the middle of Tahrir Square um, and You've lived to see like six million people across Egypt that were at the same day uh, mobilized. You're kind of insulated from what's happening outside of that because, I mean, today people are singing and dancing. We've lost, I don't know what's the last count, how many people, like, you know, I think it was, might be approaching 12 now or 10 people died. And now people are singing and dancing and back to cleaning the square and whatnot. Um, so, so there's a very big percentage, I think, of people here who simply don't care. 
They don't care about being unable to communicate with the outside world, and they don't care about being unable to communicate. They are able to communicate with millions, and the millions agree with them and mobilize with them, and that's enough for them. Ala Abdel El Fateh has been relentlessly tweeting live from Tahrir Square ever since his arrival shortly after the protests began. When I talked to him, the internet and mobile services had just been restored, and I asked him what, in his view, the government had accomplished by shutting off the internet. The only thing that we succeeded with the internet cut off and by scrambling the signal of Al Jazeera is to create a like a, a discourse vacuum. So they are now spreading propaganda. The state is now spreading propaganda, inciting people who did not participate in the revolt against um, the ones who did. Anyway, every time they attack us, you know, the, the public opinion swings to our side. So today is amazing simply because um, everyone knew about the attacks that happened yesterday. Because, because of Facebook and Twitter? No, man. No, no, man. Like, the, the people in Egypt are not using Twitter en masse. The, the majority are still getting their news from satellite TV channels. Um, you know, OCTV, obviously, but CTV is, is not trustworthy at all. Um, you know, so the word of mouth um, and TV still play a more significant role. Um, the internet penetrates very widely, not Twitter, Facebook is a more, and, and forums are a more significant um, spaces, but they take time to spread a message. They're not as instantaneous as TV in reaching millions. So, you know, we have this debate that's raging right now. You know, the question is, are these tools like Facebook and Twitter uh, actually helping uh, the protesters like yourself, or are they actually aiding the Mubarak regime that's cracking down uh, against you? Like, from where you stand right now, like, wh- where do you come down on this argument? Well, it, it was very... First of all, it's a very difficult question to answer, because it's you know, this generation uses the internet, that's a fact. And so, it's very difficult to, to distinguish between, you know, what happened because they use the internet or what happened, you know, but it looks like that because they use the internet. They, it's, it's like saying cars were central in revolt in the 60s or, you know, it's, that's the technology we use. With the, but also, I'd say, it was instrumental, I mean, I guess that it was instrumental in building up the momentum for this event, in, in making it possible for a very loose coalition of people with various affiliations to coordinate an action. But once the action started, the internet became irrelevant, and the complete blackout proved that. I mean, they've, they've spent a week continuing to work, continuing to escalate, continuing to bring more numbers, to respond more creatively, for the regime's attacks without internet, without, you know, without being able to communicate in any way using any electronic means. So it was probably instrumental in building up to this, but, it, but after it started, it became irrelevant. Now, the internet was only shut down for a couple of days, but some of the Egyptians I spoke with, like Tarek Amr, say this actually helped the demonstrations. They start by closing, um, shutting down the internet and mobile phones. So we have, we have nothing to do but to go down to the street and share and participate with other protesters. 
I'm not saying that the lack of the internet is a reason for me to, to go down, but it's, it's irritated me and it made me angry more and more and willing more to, to go down and participate. Yeah. Normally, I'm not an activist, in fact. I'm just an engineer. I uh, Yeah, I'm not playing much into politics. I follow what's going on every now and then. But this time, I find myself forced to be... Uh, to share, to share and participate in the in the demos because we're, we were like millions going down to the street and people were fed up. So I was one of them and, and I had to to be there with with everyone in the street. And you know, there was a joke going around on Twitter uh, that said, "Hey, uh, if since you turned my internet off, I'm going out into the streets." Yeah, exactly. That's what, that's exactly what happened to me and to many other people. You know, so. <laughs> so it's 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 a joke with some reality to it. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. One thing that's gotten reported a lot in the press is the pro-Mubarak messages that Egyptians started getting when their mobile service was restored. And everyone I spoke with confirmed this as well. But writer Marwa Raka says the same thing happened on Facebook, too. When things got turned back on, I didn't realize that this was the trick until maybe a day or two days afterwards. When when I found people on my friends list and, and people on Twitter and and those random invitations to groups, you know, Facebook should should end this service, you know, like suddenly you found yourself a part of a group that you didn't subscribe to. And 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 I suddenly guess in a you... situation like this that could be really uh problematic. <laughs> It, it's bad, and, and you have to see all those messages and emails from people that, in my eyes, they looked completely stupid. And I saw a part of me that I did not want to see. I discovered that I'm totally and completely intolerant. I thought I was pro-freedom of expression. But when it came to stupidity, I was completely intolerant. I was deleting and blocking people yesterday and today like, like I don't want to know anybody, like I don't care public figure, no public figure, they're my audience or whatever, I don't care. If you want to read what I write, go to my website. Don't leave your stupid comments on my Facebook. What kind of comments were these? Some of them were directly pro-Mubarak, and they're using the same lines that Mubarak used and Prime Minister Ahmed Shafiq used, and yesterday Vice President Omar Suleiman used, the paternal thing. Your father, and you have to respect him, and even when he's old, no matter what he's done, you have to forgive him. That's that's crap. So you're, that's, you're, you had to waste a whole day deleting all this crap <laughs> on your Facebook page. <laughs> yes. I don't want to be tagged in, in pictures with, with Mubarak in them or, or with stupid comments in them or with fear. Fear. I can't tolerate Mubarak, but I cannot tolerate fear. You know those little scared brats on my Facebook with all their fear messages and please ask your friends in Tahrir to stop. Please ask them to go home. Go home and then what? Get arrested? Today, this morning, I woke up thinking of deactivating my Facebook account. Andrew McLaughlin is probably the smartest internet person I know. I met him about a decade ago in Africa when he was in charge of ICANN. 
He was Google's first chief of global public policy. And in 2008, he became the chief deputy technology officer in the Obama White House. Obviously, he was unavailable to come and talk on this radio program. But he recently left the White House. He told me he's going to do a startup. So I figured I could ask him to explain to us what it means when a country turns the Internet off. It's important to note that Egypt was not a censoring country. So over the last 10 years since the Internet really became um, uh, a part of daily life in Egypt, the country was notable for the fact that it did not engage in censorship, except in a few pretty isolated cases. So in Egypt, you could see the Danish Mohammed cartoons, you could read about uh, rumors about the president's health, you could um, read stories about the military's involvement in torture, all the kinds of things that normally got blocked in countries like Saudi Arabia or Tunisia or Libya or Algeria uh, or Morocco or Syria, all of those sorts of things were accessible in Egypt. What you did see, though, was pretty aggressive use of, of surveillance of the network, and particularly cell phones. Um, and what that means is that the, the security forces would um, figure out who was carrying what phone, um, if, it was, if it was somebody that they were interested in, and use it to pinpoint their physical location, maybe to see who else they were meeting with, um, and certainly to read messages as they were being sent across the network. And I think that's part of what played into the decisions that we saw first to switch off the Internet and then to turn it back on. It seems pretty clear to me that this was a decision of the state security apparatus at a moment of panic. So they saw tons of people out in the streets and, um, and got concerned that, you know, along two dimensions. One is that they would use these tools like text messaging to be able to organize protests, um, which makes, uh, the regime, you know, makes the regime incredibly nervous. And the second is that they would use it to send pictures and photographs um, of the sort that would make Egypt look bad when they do the kinds of things that the Egyptian state security forces normally do when they're confronted with opposition, which is to say, beat people up and knock them around and, uh, um, and all the things that we frankly have seen pictures of over the last couple of days. So let's talk then about what happened when they turned the Internet off. What do you mean when you say it was a moment of panic? Well, I think a way to, a way to, a way to read this, and this is, this is um, you know, based on, on reading a lot of comments from uh, Egyptians that, that, were, you know, that, are, that were in the square uh, over the last couple of days or are in the square today. What they said was the following. The security forces first most likely panicked and said, shut the network down. They're using it to organize big demonstrations. Uh, just shut it down. And by the way, a footnote point on that, the reason that they had to do that, um, I think, is because the, the, the state just had not built an apparatus for pinpointed, sort of pinpoint blocking and targeted censorship. Um, technically, that's not actually all that hard to do, and they probably had the equipment for it. They just didn't have the human apparatus, the machinery mm. of uh, sort of people and processes to figure out how to do that intelligently, so they said, just shut it down. And then it didn't work. So they still ended up with hundreds of thousands of people out in the square and, uh, and tens of thousands in cities all around Egypt. Um, and a cynical take, um, which I think might be an accurate take, is that they spent a couple of days preparing for the crackdown uh, that they knew was going to come at some point. So their, their, their thinking may have been, we'll let people protest, we'll let them uh, uh, you know, blow off the steam, and then we will go in and reassert the power of the state. And we'll do it using thugs and bats and stones and Molotov cocktails and all the things that we usually do. And here's the sort of cynical take about the net. 
And by the way, we're going to prepare ourselves so that when we switch the net back on, we will be uh, in kind of pole position to do surveillance and um, and actually use connectivity as a way to track down the people we want to track down, look out for the gatherings we want to look out for, and so forth. So they made a bet, basically, that they could now use the network to isolate and pinpoint the journalists and activists and others that they would want to go and arrest and get off the streets um, as they send the thugs, you know, thugs in to go beat heads. It does seem, though, that the Internet shutdown didn't have any effect on stopping the demonstrations. In fact, it may have even motivated some people. And then when the Internet came back on, the dissidents also seemed to be in position to better publicize the state propaganda and the violence, thanks to the connectivity. So it doesn't seem like the government strategy worked at all. And obviously this is an ongoing story, but do you think there are lessons that authoritarian governments will learn from this story? So what, right, so, so one of the really interesting questions here is, you know, suppose you're, suppose, um, you know, you're Ben Walker, dictator of, uh, you know, Walkerlandia. Um, what lessons do you, you know, what lessons do you take away from the Egypt experience? Because what's interesting is that the shutdown of the network didn't stop the protest. No. And the turning on of the network, if indeed it was to conduct surveillance, also doesn't seem to have stopped or been effective. And one lesson might just be that, look, this is an epochal, tidal, popular movement, and this tech stuff and communication stuff is maybe useful, but certainly not the core of what the... Um, uh, protesters needed to get organized. It's not the core of what they needed to um, to be outraged and to demand change. That's decades worth of repression at work. Uh-huh. Um, the tools themselves are certainly helpful, and especially if you read some of the accounts of the early post-Tunisia moments, those couple of days after Ben Ali took off from Tunisia, it does seem like like Facebook groups and text messages and so forth were extremely helpful to spark the idea that this could happen in Egypt and to get these initial protests off the ground. But it certainly wasn't crucial. Uh, they probably would have happened anyway, some, you know, in, in, in some way, um, uh, had there been no cell phones and, and no Internet. Just because the tide of popular anger and the spread of news from mouth to ear was you know, even more powerful than anything these, these technical tools could do. Second of all, even the, a lesson you might draw is that even the sophisticated surveillance techniques and the state security apparatus that Egypt had wasn't good enough to, um, you know, stop this from happening. And so maybe if you're a dictator, you'd want to make yours even better. You'd really want to invest in that kind of uh, surveillance of both email accounts and cell phones um, and text messages that run over them. A third lesson might be that the, the Egyptians, when they needed to turn off the network, benefited tremendously from having their network be very concentrated. So in Egypt, there are three licensed mobile carriers, um, uh, and there's basically all internet traffic has to go through one, uh, one ISP called Telecom Egypt, but it's one central switching point where the traffic gets handed off to these submarine cables that, that run through Egypt. And so really to shut down the internet, they just had to make maybe eight phone calls or sent eight messages to eight different companies, the mobile phone companies, and a couple of ISPs. Um, that had uh, their independent connections in addition to the centralized one. And so that's it. And um, uh, if you were a dictatorship, you might say, well, I've got to make sure that my Internet architecture is equally uh, centralized, and that gives you every reason to squelch competition, restrict licenses, keep foreign companies from coming in, um, but to keep bottleneck control over the network itself. Here in America, we don't really have to worry about something like the Internet getting shut down. 
well, yet. But community radio stations are going dark all across the nation. Most of these left-of-the-dial frequencies have been owned and operated by colleges and universities since the FCC doled out licenses in the 1960s. But now, many of these custodians are choosing to cash out. This is what just happened to KUSF in San Francisco. WFMU's Billy Jam gives us this story. You probably heard the news already. Three weeks ago, KUSF San Francisco, a university freeform radio station, got the plug pulled on it literally when the university sold the station unbeknownst to the people who run it. Shocking. Terrible. Now, the university powers the be say that it shouldn't really matter if it's streaming on the internet. But it does to me. I love radio. I love the radio. I met up with Jantine B, former WFMU DJ and, till recently, KUSF DJ, to ask her what she felt about this. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Tuesday morning, 10 a.m., day after MLK, I had just done a double, like, trained somebody on Sunday night, did a 6 to 9 a.m. I had a doctor's appointment that I was at when I got two calls from Irwin, Howard, another one uh, from Irwin, saying, we're sold. Um, I just broke down in tears. Then I got dumped that day, too. By your boyfriend. This boy I was seeing, yeah. You know, triple whammy. So I went, had to get some food, went right to the station. Um, Shock. Shock and uh, betrayal. You know, really, it's it's like a divorce of sorts because... While, yeah, there was like some writing on the wall, we had been preparing for a while, we'd love to buy our license and succeed. It didn't have to end so dirty. So uh, what about this whole argument of USF that, oh, well, it doesn't matter, Jantine B, you can go on streaming web, KUSF.org, whatever. Um, Baloney. Eat it. I'll never do your online station. My seven-year-old niece has a podcast. It's really popular amongst her set. You know, it's not live. Um, that's just not an option for me. None of us who made KUSF, KUSF, are going over to online. None of us. And what about the KUSF listeners? I mean, how many of them listened online versus on the FM dial? Um, you know, I'm, I'm so much of like when technology is moving so much forward. I'm, ro- I'm riding roller skates. I have an A-track. I'm going kind of backwards. So my gauge on what the normal person is doing is probably off. But I know that the way the PR was set up through USF, when they said, oh, no, it's cool, we're just going online, a lot of people, even people like that I would think had a very high caliber of either knowledge or something, were like, oh, no, it's cool, right? Just online. I'm like, no, 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 no. So there was a little bit of a bamboozle in the way that it was presented. Yeah. Um, there's never going to be anything compared to live radio to live community freeform radio with no um what's the word i'm looking for no corporate interest no other interest other than rocking the heart best being a community service like let's say it's a fan or stuff hits the fan tsunami zombie outbreak something really terrible happens you can't call the internet you know like somebody's always in the studio there and i know a lot of people around town who like Count on Shmijay's show on Tuesday to be there at 9 to noon. Count on Stereo Steve on Friday. Like, you could set your watch to it. 
and that's just gone. And once something like that is lost, you can't get it back. Over the weekend here in sunny San Francisco, I also hit the streets of the Mission District, where it seemed every other person I stopped was a KUSF listener. Do you think that it's important just to have the the FM dial there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a whole, it's a totally and completely different medium. You're not looking at anything. You're 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 just listening, and there's something about just listening. We see too. We we, we use our eyes way too much. I also love the idea myself about being in the car and just going up and down the dial and kind of just fiddling around. Yeah, there's something about that, uh, especially when the dials aren't set and the, the stations aren't set. You don't know what you're going to get and you just happen upon something. Yeah. As opposed to having everything preset and hitting the buttons to where you know you're going to exactly. go. Exactly. Kind of like the station shoot. So. Yeah. How often would you say you listen to KUSF? Daily. Yeah, daily. So what was your reaction when they literally pulled the plug? It's horrible. It's really, really horrible. It's one of the things that I really love about um, radio is, is KUSF brought a lot of different kind of programming on, and it was really, it was really kind of a shock that there wasn't anything anybody could do about it. You know, it was just gone. Yeah. And what about the the <clears throat> argument of the university that oh well, you can go and listen on your computer online versus on the FM dial? It's just different. It's just a different thing. I mean, you know, radio is it's not the same. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. KUSF used to play a lot of my records um, when I, I have several projects that KUSF... What bands were they? Um, this one band called the Pink Canoes. Another one that was just... I'm a guitar player. is with a drummer named uh, Nate. And uh, there was another thing. Eft. Eft. Oh, yeah? This band of mine called Eft. What do you miss about the station now besides them not playing your music? Well, I mean, I, I'm, whether they played my music or not is, is irrelevant. What was cool was that there was just an amazing variety. And also, it, it's hard to find a radio station that turns you on to like, new stuff. And I was constantly hearing stuff like that on KUSF. But it does seem like KOSF is really like an integral part of the Bay Area, San Francisco in, in particular, right? Oh, the music scene, it was like it, it had a major focus on local music and there were several DJs that were at, like his, historical experts in local San Francisco music such as um, like Stereo Steve was you know what I mean that guy knew every San Francisco band going back decades and owned all their records and stuff yeah yeah so it was definitely a part of the music scene so the argument of the whole Internet radio versus FM radio is really what's at stake here. Of course, I'm a total lover of the internet. I love being able to stream WFMU.org from anywhere in the world. But I also love to be in New Jersey or in San Francisco and on my radio listen to my local radio station. I think it's important because it's that sense of community, whether it's just knowing that you can call up and talk to the person that's right there and you know it's in real time. Otherwise, it's kind of like, you know, when you call your bank or your phone company and it's like, do for this, press this, you know, it's like, it's gone. It's ripping the heart and the soul out of the whole thing. And with radio in particular, especially local freeform radio that plays a lot of local music, as KUSF did, it's really, really important to stay connected to the community. It's called radio for a reason, because it is radio.
the way that I think about the best websites is you start with the sentence, wouldn't it be magical if? You know, so wouldn't it be magical if people like recorded themselves in their houses and put the videos on the internet for people to watch? And, you know, wouldn't it be magical if, uh, uh, you know, every place that you went to, you could read a blurb about like what to order and what not to order? Um, and, and you just kind of continue down that path. You know, the big dream for us was like, I want to stand on a street corner and learn things about the buildings that are around me. I want to know who's been there. I want to know what the stories are. I want to see something besides what I'm seeing with my own eyes. And to try to build that in, in a in digital form, I think that was sort of the goal for us. Amanda Payton is the founder of Message Party, a mobile app that will allow users like you and me to communicate and tell stories about places. Even though her beta is days away from release, I convinced Amanda to meet me in the East Village to tell me about how her service will work and why she's so dedicated to living the startup dream. You know, right now, when, when I think of the biggest, uh, the biggest player in this sort of place-based space, it's, it's Yelp, right? It's like reviews, you know? And people come in and they write these like very specific blurbs about like, I ordered this, I ordered this, you know, you should get, this is good, this is bad, etc. But there's not, there's not any sort of service that I can think of that's more about rich content and narratives and history and the story of a specific place. So something like Message Party versus something like Yelp, for example, we're in front of Caracas, which is a place on the app that we're looking at right now. Uh, how do you imagine people using this differently? People go to Yelp for a very specific thing, which is like, I want to learn you know, what someone thought of this place. And there's just more to it than that. You know, there's, there's I want to hear the story about the guy who had like this horrendous first date here. And well, I had I had that story, <laughs> but it's I, I actually feel that this is an interesting one that you picked because as you see, there's two, right? We've got the sit-down restaurant mm -hmm. and the takeout part. And I and usually if you come here at, at the wrong time, this one the the fancier one will be full. Yeah. And you yeah. have to go to the takeout one. And there will be people just, like, spilling out onto the sidewalk. Yeah, but you don't... I mean, there's a million places to eat, but if you want to eat arepas, then you've, you've kind of got to make a choice. Do you go into the takeout one? Right. So, one, the first time I came here, I was with this girl, and she was just in a bad mood. So, I said, fine, let's just go to the takeout one. And then she got in a worse mood, and I realized... And there's nothing wrong with the takeout place. No. It's well, fine. Well, the food's the same. Yeah, it's totally the same. But she was so horrible, I realized I would never probably talk to her again right and and so i think that the other thing is is cities have such uh all cities just have such interesting quirks you know and the thing about caracas right is it's like it's such a new york place you know because it's like five tables and people will just stand here for hours and hours and hours like waiting because they feel like they have to experience it you know and so i think the girl was mad that we didn't just wait Right, right. Because, Which is ridiculous. Because she wanted to be like, oh, yeah, Caracas, I've totally been there. Yeah, you know? And, and that's like part of, of this New York kind of mentality, you know? And that's a lot of like what I, like what we're trying to capture in digital form. When you're building a startup, especially a technology startup, 
you can't build what already exists because you're, you start out behind the curve. And so you have to basically think about what you think it's gonna look like, you know, four or five years from now, and then build for that. And so the problem with that is when you start out, people mostly think you're kind of nuts because they have nothing to go off of and no model for how it's going to work. And I think uh, uh, for me personally, the most exciting things that I've done in my life have been experiences where people told me I was crazy. And so that to me has become a positive indicator as opposed to a negative one. You know, so I mean, look at like major religious movements. I mean, you could make the argument that startups are our type of religion, right? Because, you know, there's no, there's no uh, uh, sort of rational, there's not a lot of rationality in it, but it's just, you still do it. You know, I realized like, if I am the only person who ever uses this, I will still be happy. Really? Yeah, because... If you're just like the only person at the party, <laughs> yeah. and it's just you, yeah. you're telling me that you'll be happy. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that you have, you have to believe that, and you have to have that sort of satisfaction. Otherwise, um, you know, otherwise you've made something that not even you want to use. This episode of Too Much Information is called Net Delusions. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and featured Brian Elliott, Andrew McLaughlin, Billy Jam, Amanda Payton, Ala Abd El Fata, Tarek Amr, Marwa Raka, and Evgeny Morozov. Special thanks to Jillian York and Amira Al Hassini of the always amazing and helpful globalvoices.org. There's more information on the WFMU playlist page at wfmu.org, and that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well.